Okay. While we're turning to Isaiah 42, um, and the worship this morning was really good. The singing was really good. I, I was reminded of this statement one of my professors at seminary made one time, and his name is Tony Arns. He's a pastor in Northern California. Uh, Tony's from Montana. He's a cowboy, and all he ever did was cowboy. And as a matter of fact, Tony made his way to Master Seminary towing a horse trailer. Now, you could ask Kenny after the service. I'm sure that's not normal uh, at Master Seminary. But one day we're sitting in chapel, and uh, after a time of worship, Tony simply said in his cowboy sort of way, boy, if that don't light your fire, your wood's too wet. And that's how I felt this morning. So I just wanted to uh, give thanks to God for the people who led us in worship this morning. What a blessing that was for all of us. This morning and over the next four Sundays, including this Sunday, before Pastor Phil jumps back into the sermon series through the book of Matthew, we're going to take some time to look into the book of Isaiah. Specifically, we're going to be looking in four sections, four texts in Isaiah, commonly known as the servant songs of Isaiah. And what we want to do over the course of these four weeks is we want to stop for a little bit. And this seems to be a theme lately. Pastor Phil has been talking a lot about Sabbath, about quiet and solitude. And so over the next four sermons, we want to stop and we want to behold the unique glory of Jesus as the servant of God. And we're going to see that in these four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Elegant prose, elegant poetry in the book of Isaiah. Exalted language about this servant, about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so a couple things just by way of introduction to this. There are certain sections of scripture that through the testimony of the New Testament and just by the sheer nature of what we see in scripture are, are so clear that this is referring to the Lord Jesus. And I'm thinking especially in the Old Testament. These sections of Scripture being that kind of a section, that we're not going to argue for the fact that this is Jesus. The authors of the New Testament make that clear for us. And so what we want to do is we want to just take some time and we want to behold, stare deeply, look intently into this unique glory of Jesus. And so this week, in Isaiah 42, we're going to see the unique glory of Jesus as the servant of the Lord who brings justice. And we're going to see that in two primary ways. And the two primary ways that we're going to see that this morning is that we're going to see this servant who brings justice in a unique relationship to the Lord. And then we're going to see the servant who brings justice, and he brings justice in a unique manner. The the relationship between this servant, and as we now understand it, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, his relationship to the Lord or to the Father, to use Trinitarian terms, is unique. And, and in the very heart of who Jesus is and the servanthood and the servant ministry of Jesus is this unique relationship with the Father, with the Lord. And so we want to take time. Now, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. Usually, a good sermon ends with some application, right? So you preach through the text and you explain the text. And then, at the end of it, we're all looking for some application. Well, the application is going to come at the beginning this week. Your application of this text is simply this. Behold, look, gaze upon, ponder, meditate, think deeply about this. And I'm hoping that this application is not just for today, during the sermon, but that this carries us through the week and the months to come. There's nothing more important that we could do than to take some time and to look deeply and behold deeply the unique glory of Jesus. And so with that in mind, I'm going to begin reading Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to read through verse 13, though our text and the sermon will focus 
primarily on the first nine verses. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says, the, says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its city lift up their voice. Let the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Let's take a minute and ask God to bless the reading of his word and the preaching of his word that will follow. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you have, Lord, given us such a blessed treasure that your word would be now contained, inscripturated for us here. Lord, we give you praise that we have such ample opportunity to have the word of God at our fingertips. And Lord, what a blessing it is. Help us not to make light of that, Lord, to take it for granted. But Father, above even that, we thank you for what is at the very heart of your word, your eternal word, the word of God incarnate made flesh, our Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to behold his unique glory. And that as we behold that glory, we might be transformed into the same image, and so we beseech you that your spirit would do this work. Lord, ultimately, all towards the end, that you would be glorified. And so, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself through your Son by the work of your spirit in your church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are bombarded all the time in this life, the busyness of life. Just think about your drive to church this morning. Now, our drive was maybe a little longer than some of you and maybe a little shorter than some of you. The drive from Woodstock has got a little distance, but there are billboards, there are signs, there are neon lights flashing in every storefront that you go by. And this world is screaming for your attention and in our age now more than it ever has before. And so one thing that we want to do is we want to stop and we want to hear this first servant song in Isaiah chapter 42 and the last servant song that we're going to come into on the fourth week of this series, which is that most famous text maybe in the Old Testament as refers to the Messiah, Isaiah chapter, chapter 53. 
It actually starts back in 52.13, but both of these poems, both of these servant songs begin with the word, Behold. And it's as if God is right now to each of us through the text just telling us, hey, listen, stop for a minute. There are so many things vying for your attention, so many things that are trying to draw your eye and your focus to it. And God is saying to us this morning, just stop. There's nothing more important than you could do this morning than to pause, to breathe, and to behold the servant, to look and to see what God is doing in and through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beholding is hard for us, isn't it? Last, last night as we were at the men's uh, fellowship barbecue, and Pastor Phil was giving a devotion, and he talked about the decreasing attention span of people in this digital age, and how hard it is, loved ones, for us to behold, to simply stop and behold. And so, over the course of the next four weeks, this is what we want to do. And one thing before we move on, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, that these are called the servant songs. That, that the picture we see of our Lord Jesus here depicted through the prophet Isaiah in these four songs is that of a servant. And I think it's good for us to ponder that for just a moment because the idea of a servant in our culture is often viewed as less than as a diminished status and position, we, we tend to relegate the idea of servant and, and people who we classify as servants as those who, who maybe just aren't up for a skilled task. Maybe somebody who is able to answer the door or do this, but they just don't have the skills that it takes to do the really important things. And yet when we hear the message of the Bible, the gospel displays to us the greatest power, the greatest wisdom, and the greatest competency and glory through him who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so, as it often does, the reality of the word of God and the truth of the gospel flips upside down what the world thinks, what the world tells us. It's my guess that many of the signs and many of the things screaming for our attention as we go about our day-to-day -day lives are not calling out to us to slow down, to behold, and to serve. But God is because he knows what's good for us. And so this morning, as we look into this, we want to begin by looking at this servant who brings justice through a unique relationship with the Lord. Now, let me just say this too before we jump into this. That I'm not going to double up on what we already heard as Pastor Phil was preaching through Matthew. So if you're wanting to know a little more about this justice, what kind of justice this is, especially when we tend to think of justice... We tend to think of retributive justice or, or that justice that is due you if somebody sins, the, the penalty and the punishment that they will receive for that sin, and that is very much a part of justice. But we often lose sight of that aspect of justice that Pastor Phil brought out in the sermon, which is that of restorative justice. That when we think about the justice of God and what God is doing and, and when God is bringing forth justice, it's not just punishment and penalty for sins. It's not just the legal courtroom kind of justice, but it's a kind of justice that restores and heals, which is why Jesus will quote this passage when he's accused of breaking the law for healing on the Sabbath. And so I would simply point you back to the sermon series in Matthew if you wanted to catch up on that. And so now we want to look at this servant who brings justice through a unique relationship with the Lord. Notice in verse 1, Behold, my servant. I want to pause right there. Behold my servant, the Lord says. Now there were others who were called the servant of the Lord. 
Just a couple, for instance, that you could find in the book of Isaiah. David was called God's servant. David, an individual referred to as God's servant. Israel, corporately, is referred to as God's servant. But there is something unique and special about this servant. And we're going to see that as this unfolds, as the sermon series unfolds. This servant, though, now revealed to us to be the Lord Jesus Christ, this servant is the embodiment and fulfillment of all of God's other servants. This servant is everything that all of God's servants were supposed to be. And of course, all of the rest of the servants never lived up to that title, never lived up to that task. But this one has. This servant is the true Davidic king, as we heard earlier. This servant is the true son of David who will sit on the throne of David eternally and David's Lord. This servant is not only the true son of David, but this servant is the fulfillment and embodiment of Israel as God's chosen people. Everything that God was doing in and through Israel, this servant has fulfilled. So now as we look in a little closer, we want to behold the glory of Jesus as the one whom the Lord upholds. Notice what is said next in the text. Behold my servant whom I uphold, which is to say, whom I strengthen. So this servant is uniquely strengthened by the Lord. And what's amazing is that as you look through this, and as you read through the gospel accounts of our Lord Jesus, it's, inter- it's interesting, we could almost say this, that this servant has been strengthened, upheld by the Lord to be weak in the eyes of the world. As as we're going to see later, he he doesn't raise his voice in the streets. He doesn't cry out against the injustice perpetrated against him. But the Lord has uniquely strengthened this servant in such a way that his strength and his might are displayed in a way that the world would often say weak or foolish. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we continued reading through the text in Isaiah all the way down to verse 13 was this. We hear this in verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Notice that term of strength. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, Is this therefore then something separate or severed from this depiction of the servant that we see in the text before us in verse 2? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What's going on here? And I think the answer is simply this, is that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is the victorious shout of God. Not in the sense that he would raise his voice or that he would cry out against the injustice brought against him. But Jesus is the victorious shout of God in the sense that Jesus himself is the the definitive declaration of God's communication and his victorious and saving work. So Jesus, who comes quietly, who doesn't cry out against the injustice, is in that activity, in that quiet submission to the will of his Father, in that willingness to go all the way in his obedience to the Father to the very point of death on a cross, quietly trusting his Father in that silent submission to the Father, God's saving work is declared dramatically through his Son. And this is what we're talking about, that unique relationship with the Lord this servant has. That the Lord would strengthen him and empower him and uphold him to do this unique work. Next, 
we want to look at this unique relationship that he has as the one chosen by the Lord. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. As we think about this, we can say as the the rest of Scripture unfolds and instructs us that it has always been God's gracious and sovereign will to reveal himself most fully and most climactically in and through this servant. He is God's chosen one. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. And if you don't want to turn there, because it's going to be quick, you can just listen. Colossians 1, chapter 16. The Apostle Paul writes this. For by him, Christ, this servant, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Do you ever stop and think about that as you look outside, as you drive around, as you go through your day-to-day life? That everything that is created, whether it's the grass that's growing outside, the trees, whether it be any of us and all of us, whether it be the grandeur of the stars, all things were not only created through Christ, but for Christ. Everything that is, is, is because of Jesus. It was created for him. And so, when we see here in the text in Isaiah that he is the chosen of the Lord, we simply want to affirm that fact. That it has always been God's will to display himself, to reveal his glory through this servant. Next. And this is one of my favorite parts in this, and we're going to dwell, I think, maybe a little longer on this one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and then this statement, in whom my soul delights. Now, if we just back up for a minute, we think about the Lord, this God that we are hearing about, the God with whom we have to do, that he is of such infinite perfection and goodness that what God delights in must be infinitely delightful. And so I want to know about this one in whom he delights and and also embedded in this, especially as we see now the unfolding truth of, of progressive revelation and we understand this Trinitarian doctrine that the church has believed and confessed since the coming of Christ, we see a glimpse here into the divine glory of this Trinitarian relationship. The soul of the Lord, or in Trinitarian terms, of the Father delights in this servant, the Son. Jonathan Edwards, thinking through this, made this comment. He says, It is common when speaking of the divine happiness to say. And then I had to pause when I first read that. Jonathan Edwards is writing this, and he says, It's common when speaking of the divine happiness. And my only thought was, Well, maybe it was common for you, but but I'm just not so sure that this is that common anymore. I wish it was. It should be. So anyway, I just thought I would pause and point that out. But Edward says this, It is common when speaking of the divine happiness to say that God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself. God is infinitely happy. That means this is a happiness with no limitations, no bounds. His happiness cannot be contained. And what is the object of God's happiness? This kind of infinite happiness, this kind of indestructible joy? Well, the object of that happiness can only be one thing, himself. Edwards continues. In perfectly beholding and in 
infinitely loving and rejoicing in his own essence and perfection. And accordingly, Edward says, it must be supposed that God perpetually and eternally has a most perfect idea of himself. In other words, God's delight and enjoyment of himself is based on God's perfect understanding of himself and that he finds infinite joy in himself. And Edwards finishes with this. This perfect idea of himself, Edwards says, as it were, an exact image and representation of himself ever before him and an actual view. And of course, if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, one verse before we read, Paul says of our Lord Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of the Father and the very radiance of his glory. And so that when we hear in the book of Isaiah, and we hear it echoed, of course, at the baptism of Jesus, that the soul of the Lord delights in this servant, or that this is the beloved Son of God in whom he is well pleased, we see ourselves plumbing into the depth of this most glorious Trinitarian mystery, that the Father is delighting in his own glory, delighting in that which is most delightful when he delights in the Son. Remember, the application of today's sermon is not that we would go and say, okay, now what do I do? Like, what, what do I go do? The application is this, just simply sit and try to, try to wrap our head around some of this. Can you begin to see what we are calling a unique glory in Jesus? This can't be said of anybody else. I mean, this could not be said of any of us. God could not find infinite happiness and delight in any of us, though though God will delight in us when we are found in Christ. We move on in Isaiah chapter 42. By the way, I was working through the sermon this week and going over it and just kind of trying to think about time and all of that, and, and it dawned on me that, one, still, we're still in verse one, and we have more to go in verse one. And this is why... There needs to be that focus, like, yeah, we need to slow down. There's so much here. I've read over this text, I don't know how many times in the past, and it wasn't until I, I focused some time and just settled in on it that I started to go, what's in there in just verse one is enough to, to just, in many ways. With that in mind, we're going to move on next. We want to behold the unique glory of Jesus as the one who God has uniquely put his spirit upon. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He is the spirit anointed Messiah, this one. Now, Jesus is not the only one that this is said of, but Jesus has this said of him uniquely once again. Jesus is anointed with the spirit, not like other spirit anointed servants of God because of a need or a lack of ability, that's not why Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. Jesus is anointed with the Spirit, though, as a manifestation of God's choice and delight in him. As a manifestation of God's choice and delight in him. Now, of course, we, we read and we hear that the Spirit of God is operative in the ministry of Jesus, and, and there's a, a big theology to be traced out in all of that. But for the purposes of this text, and in the flow of this text, God is uniquely identifying this servant as his uniquely chosen one, and as the one that God uniquely delights in. 
I have put my spirit upon him through this anointing of the spirit because he is God's chosen one and the one in whom God's soul delights. He will bring forth justice to the nations. As you read through scriptures, as you read through these interactions, the Lord and his servant, we see something going on here. We see that there is a display of who God is. Everything that is worked out on the stage of human history, the work of this servant, his relationship with the Lord, it's done in such a way so as to reveal to us eternal truths about who this God is so that the things we know about who God is, we discern from what he has done. And so with these texts. Now, I want to skip ahead to verse 6 as we want to look at one more aspect of this unique relationship. Verse 6 says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I have called you in righteousness. Now, as we hear this, there's an emphasis in the structure of what's written here on the one who calls. This is emphasizing the fact that the Lord has called this one and he has called him in righteousness, which is to say that the calling of this one The fact that the Lord would call this servant, would bestow upon this servant the task and the ministry that has been given to him was right. It was good. It's fitting. And it's in accordance with the righteousness of God's essence. And so there is this unique display of who God is in this text and the fittingness that is in the servant for the task that he's given. Now, In all of these ways, we see a unique relationship between this servant and the Lord. A unique relationship that, again, remember, works itself out in the form of service. And so, I would simply ask us now, do do we, could we say, that as we think about our relationship with the Lord, our life called to follow the Lord Jesus, that it, it works itself out, it's displayed in servanthood? I know there are times when, when that idea that I have been called to follow Jesus as a servant is hard for me. There are times when my day has been busy and I come home and I've told people this before, all I want when I walk in the door at my house, and I, I feel like, and this is probably just a reflection of my sinful heart, but I feel like it's not too much to ask. If, if my family's world just completely revolved around me, then things would be fine. You know what I mean? Like, I've had a hard day. My feet hurt, I've been walking around, I've been talking to people. Maybe you've had a hard day of of bearing somebody else's burden. So all I want to do is I just want to come home and be the center of the orbit of my family. And I think that that would be fine and that things would go well. And it's at that moment, I remember I had a a professor at seminary. Just a, a dear man, lover of Jesus, a gentle soul. And he said, men... And, and we, we would do two days of seminary, long days. Like you would get there at seven in the morning, you would go till sometimes seven at night, and then you would repeat it the same day, and you would stay up the night in between doing lots of homework and not getting enough sleep. And then, for me, my third year of seminary, I had a short drive home. It was six hours from the seminary to my house. And he would simply tell us, listen, do not get out of that car until you have prayed and you're ready to walk into that house as a servant. And, and then he would help us to see as he displayed before us Jesus, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He would display before us the glory of servanthood. 
And those are two terms that we don't often hear together, glory and servanthood. But isn't it the, the very fact that, that it's through the servanthood of Jesus, through his humbling himself, emptying himself, taking on flesh, and, and ultimately humbling himself to the point of the cross that he is then exalted in glory, that the Father receives glory through him? And so I, I simply want to encourage us that our unique relationship as Christians, as those who call upon the name of the Lord, as those who are in the family of God, that we would display that unique relationship through serving and serving others. And then step back and see what God does. Maybe God will see fit to use us and our lives, to use Embassy Church and the ministries here to see many people come to know him through simply revealing our relationship through servanthood. Next, we want to move on and look at this servant who brings justice in a unique manner. I don't know about you, but when I think about justice, and when I think about the sort of conquering, victorious language that we hear in verse 13, where the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. So my mind goes to battles, carnage. Swords, gladiator-like stuff. And I think this is how we commonly think about victory and overcoming. And, and the media and the movies and all of the things that are put before us would lead us in this direction. That it is the strong who trample the weak and, and they take what is out there to be taken and that's how they win. And that's how victory is brought. But this servant of the Lord, remember he's the servant of the Lord. He is going to bring justice and victory on God's behalf in a unique manner. Probably one of my favorite sections of Scripture is right here. Verse 3. This servant brings justice with compassion and with gentleness. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The way in which this servant brings justice is through compassion and through gentleness. And, and I know Pastor Phil has talked about this, so we're not going to dwell too much on the imagery, but that idea of a bent or broken reed that would then be discarded, tossed in the trash, no more useful to anybody. That's not what the Lord sees. That's not what this servant, this is not what the Savior Jesus sees. And, and I'm sure in a, in a room this size that there are some of us today that feel like this. There are some of you out there right now who feel like a bruised reed or you feel like your wick is just dimly burning. And some of you may be terrified of this. Some of you may be ashamed of this. Some of you may be wrestling with, what does this even mean? And let me tell you this, when the Lord Jesus looks at you, he doesn't look down and go, I'm done with them. I don't have time for this. What he does is he comes to that reed and he, he holds it until it can grow and it straightens and it strengthens. He doesn't push it out of the way or kick it to the side. It's not thrown in the trash like last year's iPhone or whatever it may be. The wick that's barely got a flicker, the Lord Jesus, the one who is exalted in glory, kneels down and think about what he must do. He must get low and come down to blow. And he stays there, doesn't he? until it begins to burn and grow brighter and brighter. And this is the manner in which 
the Lord brings his justice through this servant with compassion and gentleness. As a matter of fact, if you were to just flip back one page in the Black Bible, Isaiah chapter 40, listen to this. Those terms of strength and might yet set side by side with gentleness and compassion. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs, the little ones, the babies, the lambs, in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those who are with young his attention is on the needy. He looks at the lamb and the ones who are with young and can't defend themselves, who need help, who are the most vulnerable. And what does he do with the most vulnerable? He takes those who are the most vulnerable and he draws them in the closest to him. Now you may be sitting here today weak and wounded. You may be flickering or your reed may feel like it's bruised. And you may say, I don't feel like he's doing that to me. I don't feel that close to him. But do you remember what was said last week? If you're here, you have hope. You may not feel it, but the fact that you're here, the fact that you haven't walked away, the fact that you haven't turned aside is clear indication that he has, in fact, grabbed you and brought you close and is holding you. Can we behold the unique glory of Jesus as the one who brings justice with gentleness? This is a kind of righteous judge, a, a kind of justice-bringing king that honestly people need. That people, whether or not they may tell you, they long for this. Because at the end of the day, we all know that we're broken. We all know if we would look deep into ourselves, and I appreciate that prayer from Stacy this morning, if we would just look at who we are, we would have to say, I'm just broken and I'm weak. Like there are so many times, Jesus, I need you just to grab me and bring me close and hold me. And that's what this is telling us today, that this is what he does. You may know people who are out there and they're weak and they're wounded. And their only conception of Christianity is of rules and you must do this and you must do that. And, and they've never heard anybody tell them, what about this? What about the Jesus who has come from the glory of heaven? He has descended. He has taken on flesh. He has become like us in every way, yet without sin. And he comes to the weak and to the wounded and he gathers them up as a caring shepherd would come to the sheep. And he brings them into his bosom. And that he has suffered on your behalf so that he could do that. And while doing that, he could still bring the justice of God. Have they heard about that Christ? Do they know about the unique glory of that servant? Or have the only thing that they've ever heard is just simply what it means to be a Christian is you don't do this or you don't do that. And you just don't watch as much football on Sunday as the rest of us. Or at least on the West Coast, that's how it worked because the game started early. This servant brings justice with compassion and gentleness. Next, in verse 3, we hear again that he brings justice faithfully. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, what do we mean when we say faithfully? Well, as we think about God's faithfulness, 
God's faithfulness refers to his trustworthiness, his constancy, his dependability. And God's faithfulness is demonstrated when God keeps his word to those whom he has made commitments or, another way to say that, is promises. God keeps his commitments. God keeps his promises. Therefore, the faithfulness of God cannot be understood apart from the word of God, the declared will of God. This means that this servant faithfully brings forth justice in that he brings forth justice in accordance with the revealed word of the Lord. Everything that we see about the Lord Jesus is that he is accomplishing, fulfilling, and bringing forth all that God has declared. This is why Paul can say, as he writes to the church at Corinth, that all the promises of God are yes in him, in Christ. All the promises of God are yes in him. And this is why through him, through Jesus, we, church, can utter our amen to the glory of God. Because that in Jesus Christ, everything that God has promised to his people is simply yes. Sometimes the most simple statements and the smallest words are the most profound. Because if the promises of God were not simply yes in Jesus, then we are hopeless. Praise God they are. What, what, what struck me about this text as well is that faithfully bringing forth justice means compassionately and gently bringing forth justice. Do you see the way that fits together in verse 3? A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It is in accordance with the revealed will and word of God that justice would be brought forth with compassion. What a good thing. What a kind and loving God. I think sometimes that we tend to think of gentleness and compassion as categorically different than justice. That these are just two different categories of thought. But I don't think it's any mistake that when Jesus is rebuking those who are misunderstanding him as he's rebuking his own people who he came to, the Jews, Jesus has said this, you have neglected, this is in Matthew 23, 23 and 24, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others, you blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus brought in mercy, which demonstrates his faithfulness. So the justice Jesus brings mercifully, which demonstrates faithfulness. It's in accordance with what God had declared, what God had willed. Now, I want to jump ahead to verse 6 again. As we talk about the unique way that this one brings justice. Have you, I don't know how many of you have ever read through this text of Scripture before, or, but I know that a couple times when I read through it, there was this point right here in verse 6 where I just kind of scratched my head like, I'm not sure why it's said like that. Listen to this. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And then this. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And he continues... What I think I expect is that it would say, I will give you to bring about a covenant, to ratify a covenant. Through you, people can so on and so forth. But what he says is this, I will give you as a covenant. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say, I will give you as a covenant? It just, 
What does it mean that he would be a covenant? What is he talking about? What's the point of that? And so I know before I just kind of scratched my head, but I did what any good biblical scholar would do. I just moved on and said, well, I'll let Phil preach on it. I don't know. Now, it's true. It's true. In every sense of the, the word covenant, that Jesus is the one who, who ushers in the covenant, who ratifies the covenant. It is the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that makes the covenant valid. It's only in the death of Jesus that we receive the blessings of the covenant. All of that is true, but why then would he say, I will give you as a covenant? And I think it's just so simple that I've oftentimes missed it. I think what's going on here is the gift of the covenant is the gift of the servant is the gift of Jesus, so that to think of the covenant and the covenantal structure that we have as new covenant believers and and this structured relationship with the Lord, if you think of the covenant and you don't think of Jesus, then you've missed the point of the covenant. There are a zillion infinite blessings that come through the new covenant, that come to you and me as new covenant saints, and each and every one of them is found in that most ultimate gift, and never apart from it, the gift of Jesus himself. And so he says here, I will give you as a covenant. The new covenant, if you read through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the new covenant is spoken of in this exalted language. It is the covenant that comes with the gift of the Spirit, no longer written in letters of of tablets of stone, but now written on human hearts by the Spirit of God. Now the old covenant was a glorious covenant. The old covenant was so glorious that after Moses received it on the mountain, his face glowed. He radiated with the glory of God. It was a fading glory. Moses knew that. So he veils his face. He doesn't want the children of Israel looking at that glory as an end, as the goal, as the terminating point of God's revelation. Why? Because Moses knew. He knew there was coming a greater glory, this glory of the new covenant. And so the the new covenant is depicted as this just immensely glorious, glorious beyond to the extent that that old covenant, glorious as it was, glorious to the point that made Moses' face shine. Paul says, listen, the, the glory of the new covenant is such that it's like that had no glory at all. That's how amazing this is. And none of that can be said if we don't understand that the gift of the covenant is the gift of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, the way the scripture just constantly funnels us back to that one point or that one person. Our Lord Jesus. And so that if you... Have your, if you're sitting here today and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a church member and I love the new covenant, I love this relationship with God, and, and there is, is there not? Isn't it a structured relationship God has given us? Thou shalt and thou shalt not, and there are commandments and there are prohibitions and therefore are good, and all of them are absolutely meaningless without Christ. If we miss Christ, we've missed it all. And sadly, there's a book titled, and the title of this book is so true in so many churches, It's one of the reasons, I think, that that there is a need for preaching on the church. There is a need for reaching out to people and and just saying, listen, we would love you to come visit our church, to come visit Embassy, not because we think that we're great, but because simply we're going to uphold the one who we see in the pages of Scripture, which is the Lord Jesus. But there's a title of a book, and it's called this, Christless Christianity. And it's so prevalent Self-help Christianity, prosperity Christianity, and you name it, everything but Jesus. And there is a need, loved ones, for us to come and to simply stop and to behold the unique glory of this servant. Because as we behold that glory, 
Paul tells us again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that as we behold that glory, the Spirit of God will do something in us. He will transform us into the same image. It's so easy, isn't it? Like, and this is good. We've been talking about solitude and quiet and spiritual disciplines, and they're absolutely important. But they are disciplines that are meant to cause us to behold. The discipline itself means nothing without it pointing us to him, to Christ. So every spiritual discipline, every discipline of grace, however you want to call it, your devotional time, whatever it may be, all of that is simply for one purpose, that we would slow down and we would take some time to behold him. And remember, this him, this Christ, this is the one that the perfect father, the infinitely perfect father, finds his infinitely perfect delight in. And so do we think that we could do better than delighting in what the Father delights in? And yet I know my heart. And so it's necessary for us at times, isn't it, to hear this. Just listen, stop. Behold. Take some time. Behold the unique glory of this servant. Next, as we look at the unique way in which this servant brings forth justice, we see that not only is he given as a covenant, but we see that he brings forth justice in such a way that makes the privilege of the few the possession of the many. Look at what it says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Verse 6. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, that kind of covenantal language was, of course, used of God's people Israel. And they were a chosen people set apart and separate from everybody else in, in the sense of God's covenantal structure. Now, that doesn't mean that those from outside of Israel couldn't come and be a part of God's covenant people. They absolutely could. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. But when Jesus comes, when this new covenant is ushered in, it takes that privilege of the few and it makes it the possession of the many. And this is the way that Jesus works. As you read through the scripture over and over and over again, Jesus always, is, as we look at him, one of the words that's used is type, typology. There's all of these Old Testament types, these, these things that are going on, and, and we see them looking forward to Jesus. And Jesus is always so much better so much more glorious than that shadow-like type that was taught to us in the Old Testament. And so the gates are just blown off of the community. And now this covenant is for the peoples and for the nations. And finally, as we finish up here, 42.7, we see the glory of this servant in that he brings forth justice through this covenant, now remember, a covenant is this structured relationship. Now, this, 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 these are not terms that the world's fond of, like, hey, here it is. Somebody else is going to structure your life and tell you what to do. This is why most people want to deny the existence of God or want nothing to do with Christianity. Because they don't want someone telling them what to do. It's amazing how simple it can be at times. Like all of these complex arguments, and there's some sharp people, like they just don't want Jesus telling them what to do. And yet this covenant comes, and it's a covenant with liberation and enlightenment. That Jesus sets people free in this covenant relationship. And we don't have time to carry on and look more deeply in that. And I know that because the kids are standing up top on the balcony. So that's a pretty good indicator, huh? I love that kind of stuff, you know? You're just going and, okay, there we go. Amen. 
Otherwise, we could be, this is the problem, uh, you're out of the pulpit for a couple months, and yeah. Now, I just want to close and read this last section for our conclusion. I am the Lord, verse 8, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. My glory I give to no other, and yet you read through the New Testament, and what do you see? You see a glory-receiving work and ministry of this servant. And yet, because of that unique relationship of the servant and the Lord, that unique relationship that now we speak of in the church as the Trinity, that unique relationship that, that the Son, this servant, is the exact representation of his nature, the glory-receiving work of the servant is not the giving of God's glory to another, but the ordained means by which God will receive glory through the work of the Son to the glory of the Father by the power of the Spirit. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to take more time to just try and behold the unique glory of Jesus. And I would simply encourage you today, pick up the Word of God Talk with whoever's in your life and, and just start to talk about some of the uniqueness of Jesus. Quiet yourself down. Don't go home and turn on the TV necessarily right away, but, but take some time and just talk about him and see what it does for your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the servant of the Lord who has brought justice, who has brought it in a unique way and who has brought it through a unique relationship with you. We pray that you would bless our day now. In Jesus' name, amen.